Bibles, we're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 1 and reading the thoughts and words and encouragements of the Apostle Peter. But I wanted to start out with this question this morning and just to get you to think about this because most of the time when you hear a sermon, it's usually directed at the church as a whole, especially from this end of Scripture. But today I want to talk to you as the individual, okay? You, whether you had a rough week, whether last night was really bad, whether, you know, you had an awesome week or any of those particular things, you know, either way, I, I want this, I want God's word to speak directly to you this morning because you all were on my mind and on my heart as I started looking at scripture and praying and asking where, where God wanted this particular morning to go. So we're going to be in Second Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 3 through 11, but before we get there, have you ever traced doubt back to a source of thought or action? Have you ever thought about where doubt comes from? And I'm speaking mainly of spiritual doubt here. Like, why would we doubt the presence of God in our lives after experiencing worship like this? Why would we ever doubt the, the, uh, the experience of Christ when all these awesome things happen around us and sometimes they even go unnoticed, but God cares for us so deeply? Well, I, I read a story not too long ago about some some Jews that were, it was right around the time of the concentration camps and they were on the run and a couple of French nationalists took a group of Jews in and put them in their basement to keep them safe. And it was for a long, long period of time, these Jews never came out because they didn't want to be seen. They had to be extremely quiet because if neighbors heard them, they would turn them in and someone would, would come and take them away and put them in a concentration camp. I think you guys know enough about the story of that to know how horrible that was. But after everything was over and these Jews were able to come outside and actually experience you know, the air and the sunlight one more time, the French nationalists went downstairs and found this inscription on the wall where they had written it. It says, I believe in the sun even when it does not shine. I believe in love even when it is not given. I believe in God even when he is silent. Really hits home a lot when we talk about doubt and we talk about what doubt actually does to us. So here are some things I believe that spiritual doubt does to you and me. That first of all, it destroys confidence. That when you and I start doubting our relationship with Christ or start doubting what the power of God looks like in our lives, our confidence starts to fail. And we try to find other means of boosting that. Number two, I think it allows for fear to stick around when it probably shouldn't. You probably know the same scripture I do that says we were not given a spirit of fear. We were given power. We were given the glory of God. We were given the goodness of Christ and all of these things in our lives. The third thing I think that hope does, I think it fosters hope, or the third thing I think doubt does, I think it fosters hopelessness. And you and I both know that without hope, humanity becomes really, really difficult. Without hope in something greater than us, we start feeling very depressed we start feeling very down, as if we want to grasp something that's just not there. It's kind of like chasing after the wind, as Solomon says. It's useless, and it's all vanity. But according to Peter this morning, I believe there's a way to remain confident in your faith. I believe for those of you that feel spiritually beaten up this week, maybe you've had a tough one, I believe this scripture is going to help you. For those of you that have felt strong all along, I think this scripture is also going to continue to embolden you. So everywhere in between this spectrum, I believe God has a word for all of us this morning. So let's read this passage. I'm going to read it out loud, and it was supposed to be on the screen, but thank you, technology, for being the way you are, okay? Uh, it works when it works. It doesn't when it doesn't. So if you don't have a Bible, it's up there on the screen now, I believe. Let's read this passage together. I'll read it for you. It says, 
His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. That by these, He has given us very great and precious promises so that through them, you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evildoers. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness. Goodness with knowledge. Knowledge with self-control. Self-control with endurance. Endurance with godliness. Godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The person who lacks these is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. Therefore, brothers, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, because if you do these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly supplied to you. Let's pray together and ask God to continue to be with us. Father, in these moments, we're grateful for the worship that we've already had, Lord, but just because the music stops doesn't mean our hearts stop. Lord, we ask that as we've read over your word, as we continue to dive a little deeper this morning, that you would convict us where we need convicting. Lord, that you'd embolden us where we need emboldening. Lord, that you would be our, our God and our Christ that we lift high this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So walking through this text, I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, I want you to notice that it all starts with God's power and His grace, that in order for us to eliminate doubt, it doesn't mean that we are the ones that need to eliminate everything else or maybe be like an ostrich and stick our head into the sand and pretend that it's all just going to go away at one point in time, that we have to realize that it starts with the power of God. So if you'll go back to verse 3, I want to show you this one more time. I've got it highlighted on the next slide so you can see what it actually looks like. Verse 3 says this, His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. That's a mouthful, isn't it? If you read over that really fast, or if you're highly caffeinated like me and you can read really fast, you, you tend to miss some of the great details that are involved in this rich text. That first of all, everything required for life comes from the Lord. That this divine power he's talking about goes back to the Greek word dunamis, which is where we get our word for dynamite. You know what dynamite does, don't you? Yeah, it makes a really loud sound. All the guys are like, yeah, we know what dynamite is because we like to blow stuff up, right? All the girls are like, yes, we run from dynamite because it's scary. Well, this particular word doesn't have an extreme crossover where this is exactly what the divine power of God does. But if you think about what the gospel has done in your life particularly, I hope it's given this powerful type explosion within you. Where you were once walking in death, now you're walking in life. Where you were once beaten down and trod down by sin, but now you're let go and absolutely free in Christ. You see the power there? That this ultimate power, it has to come from God. And Paul even records it over in Ephesians 3.20. And he's praying a prayer of spiritual power for the church at Ephesus. And he says this, Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we seek or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. This particular power Paul was praying for and praying about was for you and I, as well as this church in Ephesus. It was for every believer to harness. It was for every believer to grab a hold of and say, this is the thing that's going to eradicate doubt in my life is knowing where the power comes from. It's not from me. It's from God. 
And I think this draws us in. Doesn't it feel very comforting to know that you don't have to be the one in control all the time? If there was an amen to be had, that was a good spot. I mean, don't you believe that it was really an awesome thing that God put this whole thing together to say, look, I'm going to be the source of power in your life. All you have to do is walk obediently. It draws us in for worship, doesn't it? It draws us in to realize how much God has given us. And it should break our hearts when we're in this building when we worship. I mean, some songs get me more than others, but some spirit movements get me more than others. Down here on the front row, I was about ready to start crying like a baby. Because when the Spirit moves, that's the only thing I can think about is how much God's done for me. How much He's done for you. That should remove all doubt. It draws us in. And what this worship looks like, it should look like true reverence for God. True respect for the Almighty. An Almighty where we see pictures in the Scripture when an angel shows up, or even when God shows up, everyone hides their faces on the ground bowing because of the majesty of the Lord. We bask in it daily but sometimes go unnoticed. We've talked about sufficiency, so if we go back to our slide of of things to notice, we'll find this. And we've talked about this. Pastor Nick brought this up a little while ago, that he is our sufficiency. And he talked a little bit about a couple of definitions surrounding what sufficiency is. And I came up with one from Scripture, and it's very simply this, having all that is necessary. And he is absolutely sufficient. But I found another definition that I liked a little bit better. As you dig, you find these things. And John MacArthur writes this, that sufficiency is independent of external circumstances and from what outside sources may provide. That if Christ is truly sufficient, He's the one that holds us, He's the one that keeps us, He's the one that sustains us in every way. This should help us when we think about troubled times. This should help us when we think about joyous times. Now, if you look at the next one, godliness and knowledge of God. And I put this sort of question on here because all of us have some grasp of what it means to be godly and some grasp of what it means to have knowledge of God. We live in a certain area in Lexington where there are many, many churches. You know, sort of Bible Belt adjacent kind of where when we mention the name of Jesus, at least people know somewhat of what we're talking about. There are pockets of town where you can get into where there's a lot of refugees where maybe Jesus isn't a well-known name, but they might know something about it. But that's not what this passage is speaking of. This passage, when when we talk about godliness and knowledge of God, this points directly back to your relationship with Him. Remember, I'm talking to the individual here. Your knowledge of God is not about facts. It's not about figures. It's not about just creation alone. It's not about just Jesus on a cross. Your knowledge of God needs to be so much more rich than that. It needs to be developed to the point where you and I are actually speaking with God on a daily, maybe even moment-by-moment basis. Your knowledge of God and His graciousness overwhelms our hearts. That's what the knowledge of God looks like. And godliness, this comes from that true reverence in worship that's going to lead us to this active obedience. Have you ever tried to motivate someone? You ever been there before? Have you got any coaches in the room? Maybe you've tried to coach a little bit and tried to motivate a team? Some people use different aspects of motivation. Some people use fear-based motivations. For instance, if you're a parent in here, you'll identify with this. You'll use fear-based motivations in the sense that if you do this, you're going to get what? Fill in the blank, whatever that punishment looks like for you. Time out, spanking, you know, you, you do the math on that. But usually it's a fear-based motivation. Don't do this because there's going to be a reaction or a punishment to this. Now, when I look in Scripture, when I see what Jesus did, 
When he spoke about realities of eternity, it was never in a punishment-based sense. Like, you better do this, or I'm going to zap you from the throne of heaven. If you don't do this, I'm coming after you with the eternally long wooden paddle. If you don't do this, I'm coming after you. Notice what Christ motivated my heart and your heart with. It was always love. Nothing motivates a human being more to do the right thing than love itself. One of the things that our parents are learning together here in this whole thing of how do we parent a kid in 2018 and what does that really look like in our modern culture is that love is the greatest motivator and love is the greatest driver in everyone's life. And it should be the same in our relationship with Christ. That should drive us to obedience. And notice a couple of things also. That you and I were created not for our glory but for His. So if there's a section of your life you've crossed off and said, this is my part where I want to chase glory, where I want to chase the renown of people, where I want to live by their compliments and I would die by, by their criticisms. I want to section off this part of my life, understand something, know something really well. That's a very shallow place to, to, to section off. You and I were created for glory. Not our glory, but for His. And also created to receive this goodness that God gave us. Here's a firm reality for the believer, and this is a tough one to swallow, that if God were to give us nothing more than mere salvation, He would have already given us way more than we would ever deserve. Now if you flip to the next slide, no, you're already there, excuse me. That it is by His glory and through His goodness that we are promised some things. That from these two things, His glory and goodness, we're promised two very specific things in Scripture. I like promises, don't you? Aren't you glad one of the things we know about God is he's not a liar, so when he promises, we know it's going to come through? I love that about God. He says these two things from Peter's words. He says, we're going to share the divine nature, which I think is pretty cool that you and I get to share in that. And what does this divine nature look like? What's the exact same divine nature that which resurrected Christ? We just got done singing a song about resurrecting and what that's going to feel like in those moments, what that's going to be like in those moments, and how he's actively still pursuing us, even if you belong to him. I don't believe the mission of Jesus was just a search and rescue mission. I don't believe it was just enough for us to have salvation, although that's plenty, right? I think the search and rescue mission also had a providence and provision aspect of it too. Not only was he going to save us, but he was going to sustain us. He was going to give us everything we would ever need in this life and on into the next in order to be with us. The second thing you're going to see this, that he promised this, that we are going to have an escape from corruption and evil desires. Love that part. Turn on the news long enough, you'll find evil desires everywhere. Walk down the streets of of downtown, you'll find evil desires everywhere. You'll see places and businesses that actually predicate on those evil desires in order to make money. Right? We've turned capitalism even into a venture of evil desires to some display or another. God says, I'm going to rescue you from all of these. I'm going to give you this successful flight because here's what corruption is. If you go back to the biblical account of what corruption is, I've left it in yellow there so you can see it. Corruption is this, decomposing. and has a rotting stench to it. If you've ever driven by an animal that's been on the highway dead long enough, you know what that smell smells like, Right? That's what corruption looks like. That's what corruption smells like. And he gives us Romans 6.23 just so we can see this, right? That for the wages of sin is death and corruption and this rotting stench in our lives. And he's given us a way out. 
So, for all of these reasons that we've already discussed, for the the glory and goodness of God, what does that mean for us? What are we going to need to know that has to be in our lives? I think that's a fair question. If you go to the next slide, that for these things, you're going to find a list in Scripture. I like lists. Do you like do you like lists? Anybody in here a list person? Me, I am. I'm a to-do list, check it off the box, let's move forward with life, but we can't do that with our spiritual walk. That's one of the things that you can't put a to-do list to. It just doesn't work. But in this case, Peter's giving us some things that should show us where we need to be. So if you look at this scripture, that by these things he's given us very great and precious promises, so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping corruption and doing all of those things. So here's, here's what the reasons look like. Number one looks like this. Make every effort to supplement your faith with zeal and diligence. I put that on the end of that because I think that's where you and I need to be. If we are going to make every effort to be a part of our faith, that means we're going to let nothing stop us. That there's times and places where we need to meet in order to learn to grow. There's other people we need to meet in our lives, some older, some younger, where we need to help or they need to help us in order to grow. So you and I should make every effort to put this in place in our faith, but understand this, that faith is the root. So when we speak very clearly about knowledge of God, we're speaking about your time in conversion. When you said yes to Jesus. So this knowledge of God carries over into this act with zeal and diligence. One of the things I found about supplement is that it carries the idea and the imagery of a choir master. Do you know what a choir master is? You've seen two choir masters work their craft up here with the choir itself when they cue certain people to come in at certain times, you know, singing in certain ranges of their vocal patterns so that it all flows together. The choir master directs with efficiency and he lavishly pours over his choir the direction and the captivity where their hearts should be. And I think this is the direction that Peter's taking us. Number two looks like this in your notes, goodness. Goodness is referring to virtue or moral excellence or perhaps the the most outstanding quality about moral excellence and the fact that you and I do it. I sum this up in other words, that basically what this means for the Christian is that we do the right thing at the right time with the right heart and the right attitude. That's a lot of rights, isn't it? Make enough of them, you actually make a left, don't you? I know, poor humor, dad jokes, it's okay. I still love you guys too. Even with the pity laughs, I'm good. But goodness is this aspect of your life that should be supplemented within your faith. You and I should find ourselves doing good things for people. Good things for people around us. Good things for people we know. Good things for people we don't know. And all of this should be showing up in our lives because we're going to add this to our faith in growing in Christ. And he's going to multiply it so many different directions. The third one is this, knowledge. And this knowledge is a deep knowledge of God. This is your encounter with Christ, your first one that is rich and full and intimate in the substance of our salvation. This also provides wisdom and discernment. Have you ever just known something but don't know really why you know it? I'm not talking about the gravity equation like, well, I know gravity because I've actually fallen. I'm talking about you know, the idea of I just know this and I can't really tell you why I know it. You ever felt that way before? I think that's the wisdom and discernment of the Lord speaking directly to your heart. I think this is something that should be a part of our lives that we should never forget when Jesus saved us. We should never forget the impact that it's made on our life and never change the the trajectory of it because of that. Number four is self-control. 
This is a big one in our society right now that there's not a whole lot of people that have mastered the idea of self-control. I mean, in the media outlets, we look for people to blow up so we can catch it on camera and obliterate it on social media and everyone can dive in with a comment about how this is crazy, I would have never done this. But certainly self-control really hits us when we get behind the wheel of our cars and drive up and down Nicholsville Road, doesn't it? I mean, we really don't have to leave far from here to see how much self-control we actually have as human beings. And very simply, self-control is this, this mastery of self, having self-discipline. And one commentator wrote this, that self-discipline was, or uh, that uh, self-control was this, that literally it was holding oneself in based upon the context of this scripture because Peter defines something very shortly and I'm going to show you what this means in a minute. But Peter echoes a fruit of the Spirit, right? Self-control is one of those. And here's where Peter chimes in. That according to the holding oneself in, false teachers of this time lived for comforting pleasure and sinful desires. See, at this particular time, it was very Hellenistic. And if you know your history, you know what Hellenism is. It was the Greek overlay of every thought throughout the entire Roman Empire. So that meant for public schooling, for sanitation, for government, for education in the higher systems of thought. All of this was there around this time. And it was a given thought that the more education and the more knowledge you built up about everything else, that suddenly you were exempting yourself from moral behavior. That once you knew enough, morals could actually be thrown out the window and you didn't need them anymore. And this is the reason why Peter includes self-control. Because I think it works the other way. I think the more that you know, the more you're responsible for, right? To whom much is given, much is required for good reason. Number five is this, endurance. I think you and I can think of several particular instances in Scripture where endurance is highlighted for a great reason. That you're going to run the race with endurance. That you're not going to stop moving forward. That you're going to chase after the finish line for the glory of God. All those different word pictures come to mind. But endurance is this, it's steadfast. It's never ceasing. Not abandoning. And ultimately being patient, which is a word we don't like in our culture either. Being patient, but in the end it's trusting God for everything. That, including, that includes the dreams that you have. That includes the future, this picture of life and what that looks like out there. That means trusting God with all of it. And, he wants, and if He wants to take a different turn than where your plan goes, you work with it and you roll with it. And God still takes care of everything. Number six was this, godliness. And again, on the surface, this one looks really easy to define, but I think it's a little bit deeper than that. I think it's respect for God's will. That if God takes your life in a direction you maybe not thought you were supposed to go, that you respect it enough to say, okay, God, I, I'm going with it. Because I'm sure if we were really able to talk to you personally, every single person in this room, we could probably find a point in your life where you thought life was going to be like this, and God changed it and said, no, we need to go over here. And how you handled that was a big deal. Again, we're adding these things to our faith, not to show off our character, but to show off God's character. Because I think it is a respect for God's will, and I think it's also a moral way of life in terms of godliness. Now, whose morals are we chasing after? Are we patterning our lives like someone like Adolf Hitler and living his morals? I hope not. Are we patterning, patterning our lives off of the character traits we see in Scripture? I hope so, because they reflect God's character. I hope that's how we're actually living our lives, because realistically, these two things, respect for God's will and his moral way of life, are inseparable in our lives. 
We can't morally take a left turn away from God, but then yet still believe that we respect God's will because that's not how it works. We have to follow the Lord. Number seven was brother or was brotherly affection. Again, probably doesn't go without saying because we do a lot of brotherly affection things in and through these hallways. We shake hands. We hug necks. Some of you squeeze a little tighter than others. Some of you don't hug. You go straight for the headlock. And, and that's your deal. You know, and whatever that looks like. But brotherly affection is really big. I think it's fellowship among believers of faith. And I think it's also a companion to loving God. As we see this in Scripture, that following God is just not solely about your vertical relationship with Him, that it has to do with how we also treat other people. We can't be a Pharisee in this world and just love God with our personal holiness, but then reject everyone around us that's broken, hurting, lost, and in need of a Savior. We can't do that. We can't also be like the Sadducees that were way out here forgetting the resurrection saying, no, we're not going to believe this. We're going to believe a totally separate set of things. We can't do that either. So what's the connection? This brotherly affection because it also, it also combines with our love of the Lord. And that's the last one. Love. Because remember, love is the greatest motivator in the human experience, but it also encompasses all the other virtues that you and I will have. If you can love someone unconditionally, you're displaying what Christ displayed for you. If you can love someone like this, then you are uniting all other virtues that come with it, that this is the highest one you'll ever achieve because loving someone else unconditionally means you don't love yourself the most, which is exactly what Jesus did for you and for me. We hear stories a lot about the Bible and, and different things, and I read stories in Scripture of, of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You guys remember that story, right? Where Jesus is there and he's under so much stress, he starts literally sweating blood, the scripture says. And he's pleading with God, saying, if there's any other way this can be accomplished, please do it. But if not, Lord, your will be done. Can you imagine being fully God and fully man in that moment, knowing that you could get yourself out of this? Knowing that you could snap your fingers and thousands of angels would rain down from heaven and whisk you right to the right hand of the Father. Could you imagine the immense temptation that was for the human side of Jesus to know that he was going to love someone that could potentially not love him back? Again, love's the greatest motivator you'll ever find. It should motivate us to true obedience with Christ. Christ used this ultimately in everything that he did for us. So there's two ways you could read this passage. There's two ways you could really kind of you know, stack this up with your life individually. There's a positive side, and the positive side looks like this. That if these things are present in your life, okay, you will grow and maintain your assurance of faith. I think of John 3.30 when I believe, I believe that's the right reference where I must decrease and so he can increase in my life. If those things are happening, then you're going to grow, right? Your assurance of what God has done will always be there. And here's the cool thing about this. If they're already there, you already own them. They're yours. You've already been blessed with enough. If it was just salvation alone, that would be plenty, but God wants way more. The second one is this. You're going to find that your calling and election to Christ are confirmed. This means that God knew who was going to be saved before they said yes. This means that Jesus died on the cross for not only just those that knew or that God knew he was going to be saved, but I think it was more than that. I see very big connections to the world here, the whole scope of things. Not just election to the point where, yeah, I'm just going to die for the ones that are going to say yes. Because that's not really unconditional love, is it? 
to do something without risk, to do something without the risk of rejection, I don't think that's unconditional love. So your calling will be confirmed. Your salvation will be on firm footing. And I like this. I don't remember which commentator said this, but he said, the awakening and creation of your faith. And he tacked on a Bible verse. From darkness to marvelous light. And we are to abide in that. Number three of the positive reading looks like this. That you will also be richly supplied directly from the kingdom of heaven. Now, I didn't mean abundance, okay? In terms of your riches. I didn't mean health, prosperity, and all those different things that other people are trying to use as gospel format. But sometimes gifts that are given to you lavishly and richly supplied have absolutely nothing to do with money. Have absolutely nothing to do with your personal health. Maybe the gift is joy. Maybe the gift is peace. Maybe the gift is the eternal reality that it's by God's power that I'm still here and it's by God's power that I still remain. Maybe those are the blessings. Now there's also a negative way you can read this. There's also a, a way that you can look at this and say, well, I'm not really matching up with this. There's things that I'm missing. Well, the scripture's very clear that if they're not here, you're going to become these things idle. This is like when you're sitting in a red light with your foot on the brake and your car's running and the air conditioner's blowing out cold air, but you're not moving, right? You're idle, you're standing still, you're inactive. And he used also something that was sort of agricultural in this moment that points back to Jesus and a fig tree. It says you can be barren when you were made to grow. There's nothing about our relationship with Christ that was ever meant to stay the exact same. Not one thing. That as we are shedding ourselves, we're putting on the glory and majesty of Christ, not just for us, but for everyone around us to see His love, His purity, His sacrifice. The second thing you can read into this, as far as a negative read, is that knowledge alone can never replace virtue. No matter how much you know about God's Word, it doesn't replace you actually living it. No matter how much you understand about God's attributes and how well they fit together in an eloquent sentence that you can rattle off to impress people, if you're not living it, it doesn't matter. Peter saw the culture filled with false prophets teaching that this transcendent knowledge or this higher knowledge could exempt you from moral living, but you and I both know that's not possible. Another result of this would be number three here on this list, spiritual blindness, short-sightedness, and forgetfulness of what God has done in your life already. One of the things I've noticed about doubt, maybe you have too, that when you start doubting your Christian walk, the first thing that you really start forgetting is when you met Jesus for the first time. When you actually met Him, not heard of Him, not heard His gospel story, but when you actually said yes to Him, that's usually the first thing that leaves when you start doubting. So a negative way to look at this would be, wait a minute, things just aren't right. So what happens as a result of this spiritual blindness or short-sightedness or maybe even forgetfulness in this aspect that you and I are unable to discern positively or truthfully what our position actually is. Have you ever asked someone this dangerous question? How you doing? And really meant it? And expected the honest answer, not just the typical, you know, real quick Christian answer, oh man, I'm good, I'm good, you know, life's good. Have you ever followed that up with an even more dangerous question? No, how, how are you really? What's life been like? How's God been working in your life? Something amazing happened? Something not so amazing? Have you struggled with something this week? 
Have you really asked questions like that that are truly dangerous in many ways? But I, I think of someone when you ask this question that they can't really give you an answer. If I'm unable to discern what, I, what the positive position is in my life, I can't truthfully tell you how I'm doing, can I? I would struggle with words. I would put sentences together that don't really match up. I w- it would be very confusing. And I think when you and I look honestly at ourselves in the mirror, I'm talking to you as the individual still, when it comes time to examine your faith in this way, do you find yourself having trouble to pin yourself down? About, no, I'm right here. God, I'm falling apart in this area. Or, you know what, I'm struggling with this. You have yourself really finding a hard time to do that? Because I think if, you, if you're there, you also forfeit this idea of assurance in your walk. That as soon as this leaves, you become so short-sighted that assurance also leaves with you and you can't deal with it. You struggle, so you lose confidence. You've forgotten all the things that God's already done. So here's, the, here's a, a few takeaways that I brought for you, and then I want to bring you to a time of decision, because I think this message is for everyone in the room. And it wasn't just for my heart to share it. I think someone in here really, really needed this, for whatever reason. Takeaway looks like this. You don't have to struggle with experiencing Christ. That the experience of walking with Christ wasn't meant to be a vague, ambiguous idea. It wasn't meant to be you know, sort of auspicious where it's, it's about just in this space we can worship God. It was actually meant for you to do every moment of every day. To know that His divine power has equipped you with everything that you need. And it's because of His glory and goodness. And for these reasons, all of these virtues should show up in your life in so many different areas. So it's not quite the litmus test and it's not quite a process. But it is sort of a step-by-step understanding. Number two looks like this, that growing in virtue grounded in the divine power and grace of God is never a legalistic venture. All of those big words means this. It means that if you're not good to someone one day, it doesn't mean you beat yourself up the next. It doesn't mean you become a professional doormat where everyone runs over top of you because you're loving everyone. Love without discipline is not love. It's mere overkindness. So understand, this is not a legalistic list of if I, if I do these every day and all these different things, this is something you're adding to your faith and enjoying in those moments and finding the joy of Christ, finding the love of Christ there. And the last one is this, last takeaway is this, if you've never had assurance in your faith, if you've lost it or you desire this deeper walk with Christ, I believe you can have that right here and right now. I believe the Lord's already been working in hearts before we even got here. I believe it's, it's no accident that you've shown up. Because for the believer, this is a, a make sure these qualities are there. That if not, doubt will creep in your spiritual life and begin to tear things down. But understand, the, the strong likelihood of you understanding your true forgiveness in Christ is a big deal for this. For those of you that are here that are not believers, that you don't know Christ, that some of this stuff is really, uh, you don't really get it, I would invite you here to this altar. We have people that would love to sit down with you and explain this. But for the non-believer, maybe your journey begins right here, today. Maybe you walk with Christ in faith, seeking salvation, because he'll show you what forgiveness is. It won't be easy. Your life will not be filled with all great things from here on out, because it will be times of struggle but it will be filled with the presence of God and the power of His divinity. This is certain about our future, not just a possible one. We can have assurance. We can have strong faith. We can build in your life strong believers so that when whatever happens around you, 
you can hold on to the goodness of Jesus. Because I heard this quote from Henry Drummond a long time ago. He was speaking to a room full of gentlemen, and I know that because the first word is gentlemen. Really scientific that way. It says, gentlemen, the entrance fee into the kingdom of heaven is nothing, but the annual subscription is everything. Let's pray and ask God to help folks make decisions and get these things right this morning. Father, we are grateful for the moments that you've provided for us already. God, we pray that not only this hour, but the previous hour has been honoring to your name. Lord, that the glory that we found ourselves standing in this morning would would be all about you. God, that these lists from Scripture do two things. Either embolden our hearts or convict us where we've left things out. Reassure our faith, Lord. Build it firmly and strongly on your salvation. Continue to embolden us everywhere we go, Father. Also, for those that don't have faith, God, I pray that you would send that blessing this morning. That your spirit would, would run through this place wild and free to have your will and way and ultimately glorify yourself in these moments, Lord. We love you so much. It's in your name we pray.